Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to the eighth book of the Bible, the book of Ruth. Last week we began our study by just doing a broad overview. I had a chance to talk to some of you after that sermon. We literally read the whole book of Ruth and then we gave eight reasons why we're doing this study. And some of you very graciously said, wait, are we done with the book of Ruth? We, we read it, you gave reasons why it's important, and are we done? And if we are, we went so quickly through it that I don't know if that was appropriate. And I said, amen, we're, we're not done with it. In fact, um, normally I, I would preach this book, I think, uh, because it's a narrative and because we've done narratives before, like the book of Judges, I think narratives are very helpful to keep together, uh, not break up too much. So um, I, I've preached the book of Ruth in one setting. I've preached it just the four chapters, four sessions, four chapters. But this time around, I want to go deeply into this book, uh, especially off of the heels of Judges, where we flew 21 chapters, 21 sermons. We were flying. And so I want us to be able to go slowly, carefully. Uh, maybe even at some points, we will do an overview of the whole chapter in a sermon, but just after we've gone deeply into it. The eight reasons I gave last Sunday for why we are studying this book and why it's worthy of our time and our attention. Number one, Ruth is God's word. It is scripture. Number two, it is a powerful story and stories are powerful. Number three, Ruth teaches us how to interpret narratives, how to interpret stories. Number four, we all experience difficulties and delights and we're going to see both of those in this book. Number five, Ruth shows us the comforting doctrine of providence Number six, we see beauty, uh, the beauty of love and romance. Number seven, we see biblical manhood and womanhood on display. And number eight, we see the glory of Jesus, our Redeemer. This book has been said by some to be uh, the most beautiful short story ever written. D.A. Carson writes, There is scarcely a more attractive figure in all of the scriptures than Ruth. This is the classic love story of the Bible, but though the book of Ruth is rightly described as a beautiful love story, there is absolutely nothing romantic or beautiful about these first five verses. In fact, this whole opening chapter is a difficult chapter. This beautiful story starts off in bleak darkness. If Charles Dickens were to write the opening lines of this book, he would write, it was the worst of times. That's all it was. There was no good happening. It was just the worst of times. So since we're only going to read five verses, and we're only going to talk about five verses, I'm going to just ask you if you wouldn't mind standing again in honor of the reading of God's word. As we give careful attention to five verses in inspired scripture that deal with suffering, tragedy, despair, depression, sorrow, and what we're to learn about them. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now it came about in the days when the judges judged that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab, and they remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one was Orpah, the name of the other Ruth, and they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Father, as we come to the opening verses of Ruth, we need divine assistance. We need divine assistance to feel what Naomi would have felt, to see what Elimelech saw, to wonder what Malon and Kilion wondered, to speculate what Orpah and Ruth were speculating. We need divine assistance to take us, transport us back 
into these first five verses, in the days of the judges. And then we need divine assistance to be transported back to today and see how this story thousands of years ago impacts the way that we live our lives in these moments. So we need you. We come hopeless and helpless to learn anything from these words apart from you. We can't glean anything from these words apart from the divine assistance of your Holy Spirit. So Spirit, please do what you love to do and point us to Jesus. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law and give us deep understanding of why suffering exists, of what we are to make of suffering, and specifically of how Naomi would have thought of these circumstances in her life. Guide our time, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. One famine, three deaths, ten years, and five verses. In the book of Ruth, we find very quickly that it only takes five verses for your life to be changed forever. Five verses for your entire world to fall apart. And in the suffering of this book, we are going to see behind it the signature of a good God. But it's hard to see sometimes, and it would have been very hard for Naomi to see. I desire that as we go through the book of Ruth, you will be able to trace God's hand behind your suffering. That as you go through trials, you'll be able to see, okay, God's doing something. I don't know exactly what, but he's doing something, and I can trust what he's doing. The dark shadows of providence in these verses cast themselves over Naomi in six different ways. So we're just going to take that as our outline. The six different ways that bad things happen, the six despairing things that happen in her life, and what they mean for us. So let's go through these. Some of them we'll go through quickly. Three of them are general and broad. Three of them are very specific and personal. And so as we see these six frowning providences that Naomi is going through, we will see Naomi's suffering and what it means to her and what it means for us today. Number one, the first dark providence in the life of Naomi and her family is the culture around them. Number one is the culture around them. Verse one, now it came about in the days when the judges my Bible says governed, literally judged, when the, the, de the deliverers were delivering, when they were doing their job of judging. Now, the good news is we don't have to say much about judges in the days when the judges were judging because we just spent uh, almost an entire year looking at that together. So we know what it looked like in the days when the judges judged. We know that was a very dark period of Israel's history, probably the darkest period. We know that that was not a fun time to be alive in. We know terrible things, Judges 19, that happened. Absolutely terrible things, unthinkable things. It was a period where every man did that which was right in their own eyes. They just did whatever they wanted to do, whatever they felt was right. They were their own moral compass. These are dark days. And I love the way it starts off grammatically, now, and it could be translated, and, and then. It's supposed to be coupled to judges because judges is so bleak and then Ruth is going to be coupled to it to tell us in the middle of this darkness, there's a, a shining light. It's dim, but it's there. In our Bibles, Ruth comes right after judges, which is exactly where it should be chronologically, right between judges and 1 Samuel. In the Hebrew Bible, we talked about this a little bit last week. In the Hebrew Bible, it's actually at the end of their Bible with four other books that round out five books that they read at the festivals, at feast times, because there's five feasts. Ruth is read at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, celebrating the grain harvest. But chronologically, we know that Ruth fits between Judges and 1 Samuel. The period of the Judges, the time when the Judges governed, is Joshua's death, Joshua's death to the coronation of Saul. So Joshua's death in 1390 B.C., to the coronation of Saul in 1051 B.C. That is the period of the judges. So 340 years of terrible wickedness happening. No king, and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Ruth, specifically, took place probably in the early 1100s B.C. during the reign of Gideon, as we covered last week. So it's a bad time to be alive. It's a terrible time, terrible cultural, terrible days around them. But that's not just 
the only point. That would be hard enough. But secondly, we see number two, there was a famine in the land. So not only number one is it the culture around them that's bad, so you got bad circumstances. You also have uh, a difficulty happening here with the famine coming into the land. A famine shows up. In an agrarian culture where you are working to make food for you specifically and then to sell to gain money, this is a death sentence. To have a famine in the land means we will die. We don't have crops for ourselves and we can't buy any food because we have no money. And the famine must last for a while because if you drop down to verse 4, they live in Moab for about 10 years and they, they moved there because of the famine. And then in verse 6, they go back to Bethlehem from Moab because they heard that the famine was over. So the famine's about 10 years. That's a long time for a famine to occur. Now, some people say that this famine is not literally a famine where just the land's not producing crops, but it's the famine that's spoken of, famine in quotation marks, in Judges chapter 6, where, remember, Gideon was trying to deliver the Israelites from the Midianites, and the Midianites would just come in and would wipe out all their food. And that might be, I actually think because of the word famine and the way that it's used and other usages in the Old Testament, I believe that this literally is crops have dried up and the ground's not producing. And then on top of that, whatever has been produced, the Midianites are taking away. The bottom line is there is absolutely no food anywhere. Why is the famine happening? Uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28 tell us that if there is disobedience in the land, God would cause the heavens to be as brass and not yield any water. God would cause the earth to be completely uh, unavailable for crops to grow out of it. It was just completely stark. No food whatsoever. So it, it's probably punishment. There's judgment. Days of the judges are happening. This is a terrible time and God's judging his people. There's other reasons why it might be happening, but the bottom line is the author of Ruth wants you to know that not only do we have bad days around us, we have bad circumstances happening, the famine's happening, and you should be sweating along with Naomi and her family, wondering, what do we do now? What do we do now? There's even some subtle irony a certain man of Bethlehem, verse 1 says, in Judah. Bethlehem literally means uh, the house of bread. Beit Wehem, the, the house of bread. And so in the house of bread, there is no bread. In the house of abundant food, there is a famine. So desperate circumstances and desperate culture around them leads to a disastrous choice. Number three, not only do we have the culture around them, devastating uh, providence of God, not only do we have a famine, number three, we have a move to Moab. This is another frowning providence. Elimelech decides to move his family to Moab. From the ridge of Bethlehem, I've stood there. I've stood at the outskirts of the city. As our brother Marty was talking to us this morning, you drive through. If you yawn, you're going to miss it. It's very small. But on the ridge of Bethlehem, you can look out and you can see the plains of Moab. It's about 50 miles away. So just imagine Elimelech looking at his hometown, barren, brown, blackened by the Midianites coming in and destroying all the crops that might have existed, and they have no food. And then he looks out 50 miles in the distance. Maybe he goes like this to cover his eyes from the sun, and he can see just lush green hills. And he thinks, should we go over there? Should we stay here? What, what should we do? Husbands, fathers, what do you do? Uh, We've got to provide for our wives. We've got to provide for our household. So do we leave? What is the choice before us? Moving is hard enough. They end up moving there. Verse 1, they sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. Moving's hard enough. Just anybody who's moved, you know, that's a, a rough thing to go through. But to move from the promised land in Bethlehem to Moab, a God-forsaken, pagan, idolatrous nation. This is a terrible, terrible decision. They move 50 miles away. It doesn't seem very far away. In fact, the word sojourn there in my Bible, they went from Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn in the land of Moab. That means that Elimelech said, we're only going to be there for a while. We're just, we're going to be there, sojourners, uh, aliens, strangers, exiles. We're just going to stay for a little while and come back. We're not going to spend time there. We're not going to grow roots there. It's a bad place. We're just going to get what we need and come back. 
And how interesting that though he says that's what he wants to do, that's not what ends up happening. Moab, what, what's so bad about Moab? Well, if we go all the way back to the beginning of how Moab uh, was originated in Genesis chapter 19, it began with the incestuous relationship of Lot and his daughter. So they have a child together, and the child's name is Moab, and that's how the Moabites start. So that's off to a great start there. Uh, Moabites refuse to allow the Israelites to pass through their territory when they're coming back from Egypt during the Exodus. They're coming back, and the Moabites say, don't go through our land. They're not helping God's people out. Numbers chapter 25, Moabites are used by the king of Moab, who is Balak at the time, to seduce the Israelites to get them to disobey their God and intermarry with pagan women so that God would judge them. And this is such a bad stigma over the Moabites that Deuteronomy chapter 23 says that the Moabites are never allowed to enter into the assembly of Israel. They were cursed by God, Isaiah 15 verse 16 says. And currently at this time, during the days of the judges, uh, Eglon, you remember King Eglon, he's the, the king of the Moabites. He, he was, he's no longer anymore because Ehud, uh, the South Passave, you guys remember Ehud, uh, skewered him in the belly. So Eglon's dead, but he was the king of Moab. Why are they so bad currently in these days? They worshiped a false god named Chemosh. And Chemosh is most well known for, most famous for, infamously known for making those who would adhere to him cause their children to pass through the fire, your Bibles might say. He demanded child sacrifice. You would have a child and you would give the child to a priest who would give the child to be burned alive in the fires. That is what the Moabites were all about. And if you think about Orpah and you think about Ruth, you, you must understand that they came from families that did that form of worship. They came from a neighborhood and a community that worshiped their God through giving up their children to be burned alive. Who knows if Ruth or Orpah might have had siblings that were killed in this fashion. It's a terrible place. It's so bad that the Lord calls Moab in Psalm 60, verse 8, a wash bowl or a wash basin or a, a wastebasket, a trash can. Moab is such a terrible place. It's a spiritual wasteland. So effectively, Elimelech says, we're going to move from the breadbasket in Bethlehem to the wastebasket in Moab. This is a shocking decision for Elimelech to make. And... If you're anything like me, which I know you are to some degree because we're all Pharisees at heart, I ask, was it sinful for him to make this decision? Was it sinful for him to make this decision? And the author doesn't tell us. Uh, we can't say emphatically yes because the author doesn't say, and in doing so, he was sinning against God. If you think about it, though Moab was terrible, uh, the Israelites had become Canaanized, right? Right? They had, they had adopted all these false gods, all these false religions during the period of the judges, so they're not really looking much better. But Elimelech decides we're going to get up and move. Some people, and I've heard some people, and I've read some commentators that say what Elimelech should have done is stayed in Bethlehem, encouraged the people to repent, turn back to God, lead the, the city and maybe even the nation back to God, and God would relinquish his judgment, pull back his hand of judgment, and there would be uh, no more famine. Crops would grow. That sounds great, but my question is, how do we know that didn't happen? How do we know that Elimelech didn't do that? Maybe he tried. Maybe he tried for years. Please, people, repent. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the Messiah. Turn to Yahweh. And nobody would do it. Who, who knows what happened? We don't. We don't know. The author of Ruth doesn't tell us. And therefore, I think that we need to be careful as we read these verses to just conclude it was sinful for him to do this. It might have been. It might have been the last-ditch effort. I, I definitely think that there are clues that tell us it wasn't the wisest decision. But what we know this, here's what we do know. We know this emphatically based on the opening verses here. Elimelech and his family are facing a genuine crisis. And that 
is usually when thoughts of greener grass are sown in the soil of our hearts. Genuine crisis, and they say, we should, we should jump ship here. We should go somewhere else. The bummer about that thought, though, is, uh, as one author puts it in the title of her book, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. So go to greener grass, but you don't know underneath that grass you've got problems ahead of you. Greener grass might be the most dangerous pit that you might ever avoid. You look at greener grass, you say, I'm not going there, and it's a good thing you don't go there. So though we can't say it's sinful, I think that there are clues that will tell us it's not the wisest thing to do, but the bottom line is they move over to Moab. They're going to sojourn. So Elimelech picks up his wife and his two sons. Let's meet them. Verse 2. The name of the man is Elimelech. Eli, Melech. Melech is king. Eli is God, my God. My God is king. My God is king. Again, some subtle irony in that statement because at face value, it would seem that the man whose name is my God is king decides, but I need to figure out how to provide for myself, so I'm moving. We have Naomi, his wife. Naomi means gracious one, pleasant. And they have two sons, Malon and Kilion. These are great names, kind of Star Trek-ish names. Um, if, you, if you have sons, you could, on the list of things that you could name them in the Bible, uh, Malon, Kilion, that's on the top. Zerubbabel is above that, as we heard this morning from our brother Marty. Zerubbabel is a great name. Just name your kids Zerubbabel. Malon and Kilion. What do their names mean? Malon means puny, weak, or sick. And Kilion means complaining, pining, or frail. So evidently, Naomi didn't care much about the meaning of her son's names. She just cared about how they sounded. And they do rhyme. Just as you read them, they're the Hebrew words. Uh, Malon and Kilion are Hebrew words. They, they rhyme together. And so she just decided, apparently they thumbed through that baby book name thing, and that none of these look good. We want weak and dying. That's what we want. So they name their kids uh, sick and frail. Now, this family are called uh, Ephrathites in the middle of verse 2. Uh, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. What does that mean? Ephrathites. Uh, Ephrath is the name of the wife of Caleb. You remember Joshua and Caleb? Uh, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. He had uh, one other general commander, Caleb, who went in uh, with the spies to spy out the land. And those were the only two people that said, we can take this land in the name of God. 1 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 19 tells us that Caleb's wife's name is Ephrath and that their descendants moved to Bethlehem and started that city. So to say that you are an Ephrathite means that you are a descendant of the people who began the city of Bethlehem. That means you're going to be very prominent, very wealthy. You're the aristocracy of that city. And we're going to see that later on. We know that this is a very prominent, well-to-do man, well-to-do family. So, they move. They move to the Moabite region, and they also begin adopting the Moabite culture. Just look at the progression here. Verse 1, they're going to sojourn to Moab. And then they enter the land, verse 2, and they remain there. So, they're going to sojourn. We're just going for a little while. We'll just rent a place and come back. And then they decide to buy a house there. They're going to remain there. And then if you go down, they live there for 10 years, verse 4, end of verse 4. So they go for a short stay until things get better. They end up remaining there. They end up marrying wives of the Moabite culture. They live there for 10 years, and they don't really have any plan to go back. This is the progression of slow and steady compromise. Again, while I don't think that we can say necessarily what Elimelech chose to do was sinful, I definitely think through the clues of this book we can say it wasn't the wisest thing. So maybe some people just throw on, well, therefore it's sin. I want to be careful but I don't think it was the wisest. And as they slowly start making unwise decisions, one little unwise compromise leads to the next, leads to the next. What about for you? Are there any areas in your life where you have slowly begin, begun to compromise? Just one quick look here, one small bet here, one tiny sip, just cheat in one little area on my taxes. One little click of the mouse, one little lie. 
And little by little, that compromise grows, just like we see in Elimelech. Well, we shouldn't go, we shouldn't really go there, but we'll only go for a little while. And then it becomes, we'll buy a house there. And then it becomes, let's marry the people here. They adopt the culture. And then it becomes, let's just stay here. There's no real reason to go back home. All because there was greener grass on the plains of Moab. Greener grass grows into a tangled wilderness where one can barely see the daylight or find their way back home. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, if there is any place in your heart where compromise has happened and you see yourself going down a road towards greener grass, remember that greener grass is sitting over a septic tank and go back home to the provision that God would give to you. When you leave the path of obedience and wisdom, you invite pain to become your traveling companion. Greener grass often disguises greater grief. Just trust the Lord where you are. Fortunately, as one commentator writes, for all of us, God has a way of finding people who are lost in the middle of Moab, the trash dump, and sets their feet back on the path to Bethlehem, the house of bread. He never forces our feet to move. The path back will always begin with fresh surrender and repentant trust. But the good news of of grace is that God has a way of redeeming wasted years and foolish decisions. Like the prodigal's father in Luke's gospel, God is waiting to offer fellowship to runaways who return to that place where they left the path, the place where they will begin to write a new chapter in their relationship with Jesus Christ, a most gracious, forgiving kinsman redeemer. Your story doesn't have to end with the downward spiral of compromise. It can stop today in repentant trust. So we have... Living in the days of the judges, the culture in which they lived in, we have a famine in the land, we have a move to Moab. Those are the three broad and general frowning providences over Naomi's life. And those three are enough to make us say, man, this is a bleak beginning to this book. But then verse 3, we see our fourth frowning providence, and this is where they get specific and very personal. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Though Elimelech could outrun the famine, he cannot outrun death. This is so simple and straightforward. There's no explanation given. Why did he die? How did he die? What what happened? It just says he passed away. Sometimes we forget to count the spiritual cost in things uh, when we're just counting the financial cost. We don't know exactly why Elimelech died, and I think that's the point of these opening verses. But if it happened to have been judgment, remember, all he's wanting is to stay alive. We've got to move from Bethlehem to stay alive in Moab. And he dies in Moab. Often we think we just need to do whatever it takes to survive instead of asking God, what can I do to glorify you? What would bring you the most glory? He dies. But there seems to be a little bit of hope at the end of that sentence because Naomi still has two sons to carry on her family name. But then we see frowning providence number five, that Naomi's sons marry Moabite women and are unable to conceive. So the hope that Naomi might have now is I have two sons, if they can get married... We can have children and we can continue to provide. We can continue to be okay and carry on the family name. So, verse 4, these two sons took for themselves Moabite women as wives. Now, this is a strange thing for them to do. Again, not out and out forbidden in Scripture, though Deuteronomy 7 comes very, very close. It doesn't say you can't intermarry with a different ethnic group. That's not the right understanding of that verse. It says, don't intermarry with a different ethnic group who is idolatrous. And so I believe that the implication of that verse is don't marry with somebody who is idolatrous. We don't know where Orpah and Ruth are at this point. Maybe they're wanting to get out of the Moabite religion. Ultimately, Ruth will. But they make a a strange decision, Malon and Kilion do. I, I don't know where Naomi is in all of this. Is she encouraging just to get married? Maybe she is. Maybe she, in in the darkness of the despair of losing her husband, she's saying, just let's do something that will give us hope. Even if it's not the wisest, let's do something that will give us hope. And so they marry. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of one is Orpah, and the name of the other is Ruth. Again, they are coming from the Moabite religion of worshiping Chemosh, 
Who knows where they are in that religion, but that's where they have come from. Orpah means obstinate or strong-necked, stubborn. And Ruth means comfort or friend. And so there's an excitement of, despite losing my husband, maybe I will have grandkids that will be able to provide for me and help me and encourage me and carry on the family name. But evidently, it's 10 years that they're unable to have children. They're there for 10 years and they're unable to have children. And then, as if that frowning providence weren't enough, number six, and finally, Naomi's two sons die. They live there for 10 years, verse 5, then both Malon and Kilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. The unthinkable happens. First, we start with the culture around them, a famine in the land, and a move to Moab. And then things get very specific and very dark very quickly. Elimelech dies. Uh, Malon and Kilion marry Moabite women. There's a huge question mark over that. And then they are unable to have kids and die before they're able to produce offspring. Ten years after her husband's death, her two sons die as well. Again, remember, Elimelech made this move so that he and his family wouldn't die. And now he and his two sons have passed away. And the author wants us to see the starkness of this because notice what he says in verse 5. Both Malon and Kilion also die and the woman was bereft of her husband, not Naomi. The author wants us to see that in losing her husband and her sons to carry on her family name, she has become nameless. In losing her husband and her sons to provide for her, she might as well be going extinct. There's nobody there to take care of her. There's no hope for her. There's no hope for these two women. Now she has daughters-in-law, but if they move back to Bethlehem, those daughters-in-law cannot get married in Israel. They might be shunned. They're not going to be welcomed back. They're Moabite women. They're not going to be welcomed back into Israel. And Naomi, as we're going to see next week, doesn't have any more kids. She's going to tell them, even if I were to find, find a husband, I don't even have a husband, even if I were to find a husband and somehow get pregnant on the first night of our wedding, first night of our marriage, even if that were to happen, you'd have to wait a while before you could marry my kids. So just go. And let me go back to Bethlehem with zero hope, with no hope whatsoever. Five verses, that's all it took. Five verses and Naomi's life is decimated. Brothers and sisters, all it takes is a text or a phone call. It just takes a phone call. You see a name of a buddy calling you. You pick it up and you say, hey, how are you doing? And there's silence over the phone. And then you hear through a, a voice that's quivering, I have bad news that I have to tell you. It takes a moment just five verses for your life to be turned upside down. Now, my question is why? Why does this happen? If, if there were a movie about this and a good director were to shoot this film, I think the end of verse five, you would just see Naomi and the shot would be close in on her face, just tears streaming down her face. Maybe she can't even cry anymore. She's been crying so much. And as it pulls back, you see her kneeling down in front of three graves. And we, the readers and the watchers of that film and the readers of this book, we stand back and we have two thoughts that instantly come into our mind. Number one, sympathy for Naomi. Can you even imagine the suffering that she's going through right now? Can you even imagine it? And then number two, we start to ask, okay, God, why is this happening? Why, God? We have sympathy for Naomi, and we have questions for God. And the frustrating thing is those questions aren't answered. Why did Elimelech die? No ink spilled on that. Why did Malon and Kilion die? Nobody tells us. Nobody tells us. There are no reasons explicitly given. They're just reported. Their deaths are just reported. Elimelech died, Malon and Kilion died. That's it. No reasons. Remember, this is a story... It's a historically true story, but it's, it's being told as a story. And a good storyteller knows what to put in and knows what to leave out. 
And this storyteller is leaving out the reasons why things are happening intentionally so, so that as we ask the question, wait, why is this happening? He's set the hook inside of us. He's got us right where he wants us. Why does it happen? Why did it happen? And the answer is complete silence. We don't know. Why do bad things happen to good people? We talked this morning in Sunday school. There ultimately aren't any truly good people. We compare them to one another. We say so-and-so is better than so-and-so, but compared to God, nobody is sinless. But there's nice people in the world. We're not all as bad as we potentially could be. Why do bad things happen to nice people? Well, there's a couple answers given. Number one, the answer could be just chance, bad luck. Bad luck, bad chance. As we go through this, we're going to see the Bible doesn't allow for that. The Bible has zero allowance for randomness, for chance. There's no allowance for that in the Bible. Okay, then maybe it's Satan. Satan's behind this. Satan's attacking. It could be. But we know because of the book of Job that Satan can only do that which God allows. Sometimes I think functionally we don't live that out. Sometimes I think functionally, though we know biblically, Satan cannot do anything apart from God allowing it, ordaining it, okaying it. I think sometimes we, we put them as if they're fighting, almost in a dualist sense of, well, God and, and Satan are on equal playing ground, and they're fighting against each other. And so when bad things happen, that's Satan saying, I'm going to try and grab people and steal them away. And when good things happen, that's God working. I've heard people functionally live this out. When there's some devastating earthquake that happens, and let's say the earthquake takes down a planned parenthood building, and we say, you know what, God's good. Maybe it happened during the night. Nobody even died. But praise God that one less place where abortion is happening, this is great, good news. And then maybe the next night, another earthquake happens during the evening, and a church building is destroyed. And we say, oh, Satan's just attacking us. Satan has no power but that which God allows him to have. Satan is on God's leash. And that leash is very short in God's hand. Satan is a creature. Brothers and sisters, remember this. He is a creature. He's not all-powerful, and he's not omnipresent. Is God present everywhere? Is he in this room? Absolutely. Is Satan present everywhere? Is Satan in this room? I doubt it. I doubt he's here. He's not present everywhere, biblically. So, it's not random luck, bad luck. It's not chance. No, the biblical answer is what Job says. In the midst of his suffering, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, and blessed be his name. God's behind this. Do you remember Exodus chapter 4, uh, verse 11? Moses says to God, I'm not a man who can speak very well. You shouldn't send me. I know you picked me, but you should have picked my brother. Pick somebody else to go talk to Pharaoh. Say, let my people go. What's God's response? I've always thought it's very interesting, his response, given our you know, self-esteem culture. God doesn't say, oh, Moses, you're really not that bad of a communicator. Come on, you got this one, buddy. No, he almost affirms it. He says, I made your mouth. Who made man's mouth? I made your mouth exactly the way I wanted to make your mouth. I made you able to speak exactly the way I wanted you to be able to speak. And then he says four things. Who makes man mute, deaf, blind, or able to see? Is it not I, the Lord? God does it. And I love in those four examples that God gives. He doesn't split it up. Mute and deaf, blind and hearing, or seeing and hearing, he doesn't split it up, two and two. He waits it on the bad side. Mute, deaf, blind, and able to see. God's the one who's behind all of it. God's the one who's behind all of it. But if you're following along, I'm answering a question that I didn't even ask. Because I'm not asking who's behind it. Let's affirm together, and we're going to do this over the course of this study, God's behind everything. But that's not the question I asked. That's probably not the question you asked. The question we're asking is, but why is it happening? Why is one child born with a deformed hand and another grows up to be a concert violinist? Why is one child born and becomes a rocket scientist and one child is born with a learning disability? Why? Why, God? We know, God, you're behind it, but why? Maybe it's because of our sin. Maybe, but not always. 
Remember John chapter 9? This is the disciples' question. Who sinned this man, a man who was born blind? Who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born this way? Whose sin was it that made him this way? Because obviously, if bad things happen to you, it's because you sinned. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It's not because of his sin or his parents' sin. It's just for the glory of God. It's not because of anything anyone did. So, some people read into this, well, Elimelech died and Malon and Kilion died because they sinned. This is God's judgment upon them. And I would just plead with you, don't be that hasty. Don't be like Job's friends here. If God wanted to tell us that, he would have had that right here in the opening verses. They sinned as divine judgment. They sinned and there's going to be judgment and they die because of that judgment, because of the sin that they go through. But the author does not give us that information. Remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul experiences a thorn in the flesh, suffering that he prays three times, God, take it away. And why does he experience it? Is it because of Paul's sin? No. Specifically, it was to keep him from sin, to keep him from boasting. So maybe God's giving these things to Naomi to keep her from sin. All we know is there is absolutely no explanation from God. And if we're honest, this is the hardest part of suffering. This is the hardest part of suffering. To go through it, to ask the question why, God, why are you doing this? What are you up to? And there's just silence. We can deal with dark seasons of the soul a little bit more easily, sometimes a lot more easily, when we understand what's happening, what's causing it. But the hardest part of suffering is when you go through with zero explanation. You can't find a reason. You don't understand. And that word in big, all caps, bold, underlined, is screaming in your head, why? God, why? Well, I want to conclude this portion of Ruth by saying, I don't know why these things happened. But there are two things that every person must cling to in dark seasons of the soul, even when why isn't being answered. There's two things that we know. Number one, we know that our God is unfailingly good. Our God is unfailingly good. He brings beauty out of ashes, the Bible says. He turns our mourning into dancing. Remember, this is a story. And it's crafted beautifully. Again, historically accurate, but it's crafted beautifully. And even in this story, we cannot leave this sermon with just utter darkness. Because I want you to see that in the dark providences in the beginning of the book, God's going to bring about some amazing, beautiful, uh, grandiose designs that Naomi had no idea they were going to be happening. Just... Look for a second, if you will, at the very beginning, opening paragraph. It's the days when the judges ruled, and Israel has no king. At the end of the book, the last name mentioned in that list of people is whom? It's David. He's going to be Israel's greatest king. Here's a day when Israel has no king, and at the end of Judges, Israel's going to have a king. They're going to have somebody to rule in righteousness. And he's going to fail too, and that's why the ultimate king is going to come through the line of David. So even in this book, four short chapters, five verses at the beginning that just say everything is terrible, but at the end, it's going to be okay. God has good purposes and good designs. At the very beginning, opening verses, Elimelech, his name means my God is king, and he is an Ephrathite from Bethlehem. At the end, God's king is given to Bethlehem, David. And ultimately, that person's going to bring about the greatest king, King Jesus. In the very beginning, verse 5, Malon and Kilion die, and the woman is bereft of her two children. My Bible says children. Does your Bible say children? It's very interesting because if you go back up to verse 2, verse 3, sorry, she was left with her two what? Sons. Sons is the word ben, right? Benjamin, son of you. I mean, ben, son. But it says children in verse 5. Different Hebrew word. Yaladim. 
Little babies. We've got sons, and we have little babies. Why does the author say Malon and Kilion, who are now older than they were in verse 3, and he called them sons in verse 3, but now he says they're little babies, and she's lost her little babies. I think, number one, to highlight the emotion of losing your sons. But number two, he's going to use that word again. Turn over to chapter 4. He's going to use this word again. Verse 16, Naomi, chapter 4, verse 16, Naomi takes the child, the Yeladim. She takes this child, this child that was born to Boaz and to Ruth. She lost two in the opening five verses, but at the end she's going to gain one who's going to bring about another and another and another and another. At the beginning of this, chapter, uh, of this book, we have two wombs that are barren for 10 years, no children. Just like Abraham and Sarah, by the way. They were married for 10 years with no children. And that's when, in their 10th year, Sarah says to Hagar, here, come sleep with my husband so we can have a child. Rabbinic law said that if a woman did not bear a child with a man after 10 years, you could legally divorce. So 10 years without a child is huge. They had no kids for 10 years, but at the end, Go back over to chapter 4. At the end, there's a child that's laid on Naomi's lap. And verse 18 begins a, a genealogical record. How many names are in that list? Go ahead, count them up. How many names are in that list? There are 10 names in that list. Malon and Kilion with Orpah and Ruth, were unable to have children for 10 years. 10 years of barren hopelessness for Naomi, who knows, if I don't have grandchildren, and if I can't carry on the family name, I've lost everything and I've become extinct. And for every year of barrenness that Naomi had to watch, she's going to gain a generation for every year. 10 years of sorrow and suffering, 10 generations of blessing. And the end, the last person mentioned is David. It's a dark providence at the opening of this book, but God will prove himself good. And for you, brother and sister, God will do the exact same thing. It may never even be in this life, but God will prove himself good. So number one, in dark seasons of the soul, you must cling to the fact that God is unfailingly good. As one writer put it, when you cannot trace his hand, trust his heart. When you can't understand what are you doing, trust his heart. He is good. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 33. Just write it down. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible. God does not afflict willingly the sons of men. He afflicts us. He brings pain into our lives. He brings suffering. But he doesn't do it willingly. The Bible says that Hebrew word for willingly is literally from the heart doesn't make him happy to watch us go through suffering. He's not like, hey, this will be a fun day. Let's just wreck somebody's life. No, he says, I'm going to have to let you go through something devastating to bring out something beautiful. And I don't want to see you go through this pain. He doesn't do it from the heart. It hurts our God to watch us go through suffering. But he knows what it's going to produce. Secondly and finally, we not only must trust in our unfailingly good God, but secondly, we must remember to interpret our suffering in light of the cross. We must interpret our suffering in light of the cross. Jesus himself asked the why question, why have you forsaken me? Was it bad luck? Was it bad karma? Did I do something wrong? And Peter, in the first Christian sermon ever preached in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, says it wasn't bad karma, it wasn't sin, it wasn't bad luck. Jesus is on that cross, you remember, by the predetermined foreknowledge and plan of God. So the cross, as the ultimate example of injustice in the world, suffering that's unimaginable, if Jesus goes through that for our good and for the glory of God and God's hand is behind it, then that will in turn shape our hermeneutic of suffering, how we interpret our suffering. We cannot be going through suffering because God's not good. 
Romans 8, 28, he's going to cause all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Why? How do we know that? The anchor is in verse 32 that we studied on Good Friday and Easter. Because the Father did not spare his own Son, but freely gave him up for us all. He's going to give, he, he did the hardest thing. He can do any easy thing alongside of it. The darkest providence of the cross had intention, design, and purpose. There is no suffering or affliction or shedding of tears that is pointless, purposeless, or without merit. God never wastes a single tear that you cry. As Elizabeth Elliot said, suffering is never for nothing. It's never for nothing. So I pray, I pray, I've been praying for this series, I've been praying for this sermon, and for the rest of our time together, I pray that you will become convinced of the goodness of God as we go through the book of Ruth, that you'll become convinced of the goodness of God in your suffering and that your hermeneutic for suffering, the way you interpret suffering, is the cross. And that's why we gather together and we partake of communion. We partake to remember our sins been paid for once and for all. We, we partake to remember unity within the brother. And we can't have something wrong with each other when we have nothing wrong with the Father, when he reconciled us to himself. We take this for so many reasons. But this morning, as we prepare, we're going to sing a song. We're going to take this together. As we prepare to partake of communion, this morning, I want us to take communion in light of this sermon, in light of the, the hermeneutic that suffering or that the cross gives to us in the midst of suffering. I want you to take communion this morning to remember that God declared once and for all, I'm for you, I'm good, and I love you. So that whatever suffering you are going through, Whatever suffering you're going through, as you partake of this, you can remember, quote Romans 8, 32 to yourself, God did not spare his, his own son. He loves me. And he's not letting me go through what he's letting me go through. He's not ordaining the suffering that he's ordaining just because he wants to mess with my life. He's doing it because he loves me. Father, I pray that as we prepare to partake of communion this morning, that we would remember you did the hardest thing. You gave your son while we were still sinners, while we were enemies. And because of that amazing love, you have, in your kindness, lavished grace upon us, blessing upon us, and in doing the hardest thing, everything else is easy for you to do. God, help us to get good at interpreting your hand in our suffering. We might, know, we might not know the answer why, but we know that you are good that you love us. I pray that as we meditate on the cross, we would affirm these truths to our hearts. We pray.